Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program. It's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Nerdcast is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus, engaging video lectures presented by top university professors on a variety of topics. The perfect way to learn for the pure pleasure of it. With The Great Courses Plus, you'll have unlimited access to a wealth of knowledge. Watch lectures from any device on your own schedule. Sign up today and get your first month free. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash nerdcast. Hello and welcome to Politico's 2016 Nerdcast, where we bring you the stories behind the stories and geek out on this amazing circus of an election. It's Thursday, August 25th, and I'm Kristen Roberts, national editor. Here are the numbers that mattered this week. 8.4 million. That's how much Trump's campaign gave to a digital ad company as he tries to catch up in the ad war. Four to one. That's the ratio of Trump events to Clinton events as the Democrat tries to run out the clock. Four. The number of battleground states where the spread is within the margin of error. And here's a number from one of our listeners. 500. That's the number of Donald Trump's businesses, many, if not all of them, posing a potential conflict of interest should he win the White House. Grab your calculators and enjoy the 2016 Nerdcast. Hello, party people. Hadass Gold. Hello. Eli Stokels. Hey, Kristen. Ken Vogel. Hey. And Scott Bland. Hello. So we've got another great email from one of our listeners. Let me introduce everybody to David Sloat from Western Pennsylvania. David, thank you for emailing us and for calling in. Hey, thanks for having me. So what's your question? My question is uh, is actually related to all of the uh, discussions that have come up this last week about the Clinton Foundation. And it's sort of the opposite side of that, which is that it seems like an in-depth discussion of Trump's uh, ownership of his 500 companies is also needed. So, for instance, what will he be doing? Will he be trying to run the company from the White House or turn the companies over to his children? And then what would prevent him from the same ethics questions about capitalizing on his status, the push for you know, favorable deals with uh, foreign countries that his businesses work with, or pushing for domestic decisions beyond the obvious tax ones that would benefit his companies? So I was interested what the, uh, the panel thought. It's actually a really good question, David, and I'm, I'm happy that you sent it in. The data point that you suggested in your email was 500. That's how many businesses Trump owns. And he wouldn't have to disown them. He would have to disclose them. Um, ethicists who look at this and who have some experience, ethics lawyers with previous presidencies say the scale of this would be unprecedented, Eli. Yeah, no president or presidential candidate has ever possibly gone into office having 500 different companies that they sit atop of uh, as the owner and CEO. Trump said when he was, uh, ironically, when he was on his trip to Scotland in the middle of the campaign, when he was opening up uh, the renovated Turnberry Golf Course, he was asked this question at that time and said he would probably put all of these businesses into a trust uh, that his children would control. And that's similar to what Mitt Romney did. That's sort of what most presidential candidates who have any sort of financial portfolio will do. Obama didn't do it, but, but everybody else with you know serious investment portfolios, that's generally what they do. The problem is um, 
you know, according to a lot of ethicists, it does not necessarily absolve you of potential conflicts of interest. I mean, think about it. If Donald Trump gives his, you know, puts all these things in a trust and gives control to his three children, you would have to sort of presume that Donald Trump no longer cares about the financial well-being of the next generation of Trumps if you're going to believe that just by doing this, he no longer has any vested financial interest that could conflict with his decisions as president. I mean, think about trying to put you know, financial policy policies in place to regulate banks. That will hugely impact uh, whatever you know, portfolio There's his children still control. There's a big difference between a trust and a, a blind trust and a double blind trust. I mean, what presidents typically do is put something in a trust that, that is controlled by a financial advisor that they don't actually consult with during the term of their presidency. Ken? Yeah, I mean, having your kids running the business, and that's not, that's not a trust. That's having your kids running the business. Right, let's separate kids. these two issues. Right. One thing is to have your children run the business. The other thing is to put your holdings into a trust. These are that, two I mean, separate he says, issues. He says my, and you're right, and he said both literally in the same breath he said i would probably put everything in a trust but then he says my children will run it along with my executives it's a big a big company my children will run it along with my executives and just do a good job running well if his children are his closest advisors which we've certainly seen on the campaign trail and one would expect that they would continue to be in a potential trump presidency well that's not a whole lot of degree of separation at all and i think it would continue to uh, raise these questions about potential conflicts of interest, particularly when it's not just Clinton who has interest overseas with some potentially dicey folks whose whose interests aren't necessarily in the best interest of the United States of America and its national security. I'm thinking now about the Russian business ties that he has in particular. Well, those are legitimate issues, and and the and David is right. If we're asking those of, of uh, Hillary Clinton, we should be asking those of Donald Trump. Let's thank you. Let's uh, thank David for calling. Thanks so much for your question. Thanks for having me. All right, data point number two, 8.4 million. That's the amount that Trump's campaign spent last month on digital consulting and online ads through a San Antonio-based digital marketing firm that Ken Vogel's going to pronounce for us. Uh, the firm is called Giles Parscale, and it's uh, owned or co-owned by Trump's new digital director, Brad uh, Parscale. He's actually been the digital director for a little while, but he's new to politics. And it's it's really interesting and sort of telling how this guy came to be in this very important position, making a whole lot of money from the Trump campaign. He was a web designer. He's out of San Antonio. He's a web designer whose previous experience included doing the websites for Donald Trump's real estate properties, for his golf courses, for Ivanka Trump's brand. Didn't really have any political experience before this point uh, and has been thrust into this position where he was originally just making the websites for the campaign, which my sources tell me didn't really work that well in terms of like integrating the data that was collected from visitors to the website into the campaign's master database. But he's also running the full digital strategy, including uh, the web-based advertising, uh, on the social media, which is like a big part of it, putting a lot of money into Facebook ads and the like, uh, and also going with uh, subcontracting out to this firm, Cambridge Analytica, which is uh, owned, our reporting shows us is owned by Robert Mercer, who's the, the, the uh, Long Island hedge fund billionaire, who is the leading funder of the Trump campaign, and who is the guy who funded Breitbart News, is close with Steve Bannon, who is the, uh, who is, uh, the new uh, campaign uh, 
chief executive. And uh, so there's a lot of action sort of going on behind the scenes with folks who don't really have a whole lot of campaign experience. And Ken, a lot of the the spending that that has run through this firm that, that accounts for about half of what the Trump campaign spent last month is donor prospecting, right? It's it's trying to build that small donor army that he kind of let languish for a year and which he could be raking in money hand over fist from right now. And he is he is raising a fair bit of money from it right now, but he, he could have had that list built already and is just doing it now, right? Yeah, that's exactly right, Scott. And you're right, he is raising a lot of money from small donors, but he's spending a lot to raise that money. And that's where this uh, Giles Parscale firm and Brad, and Brad Parscale come into play. I mean, it's 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 sort of like the the uh, the Ben Carson model. You if you spend enough renting list and bombarding the list with emails, you're going to raise some money. But that's sort of you know you have to subtract from that online fundraising hall the amount of money that was spent. There was a lot of really interesting stuff in this latest FEC report, especially if you start looking at the kind of things that he's spending on beyond that. Look at how much he's spending on ground operation on his personnel, and compare that to Clinton, right? So what do we find out? That Trump spent only four hundred and thirty-two thousand dollars on staff and field organization. Clinton spent two point nine million, and the disparities. It's extraordinary, and it says everything about how they're both doing, faring, uh, respectively, in the battleground states. But I want to come back to this thing, Ken, that you mentioned, and that's Bob Mercer, because you're painting a picture of a guy who's sitting at the center of something. Tell us about Mercer. Who is he? Yeah, so Bob Mercer is a, a guy who is uh, sort of a math geek, uh, but he made a ton of money in hedge funds. We should funds. have him on our show. We should have him on our show. Unfortunately, he's a little bit reclusive and hasn't been uh, very responsive to my repeated outreach over the years. Uh, He has a press guy who at one point actually was interesting. The press guy pushed back, said, no, he's not a billionaire. He's only worth 900-something million dollars. But uh, in fact... Uh, we understand that subsequently, this is a few years ago, he has qualified for at least politico billionaire status. So it's funny not, who wants to be a billionaire and who doesn't, right? right? Totally. We had Foster Freeze pushback in 2012 when we named him as the uh, the billionaire who helped Rick Santorum win the uh, win the Iowa caucus. He said, "Now, now, now, if I'm a if I'm a billionaire, I'm sort of a billionaire light. I'm a junior billionaire. I'm not a real billionaire <laughs> like these other guys." That I'm like, man, I wish I had your problems, yeah, buddy. First world problems. Right. But anyway, Bob Mercer, um, you know, he's become increasingly influential in American politics. He was he was at one point sort of a, a key central part of the Koch brothers network, but he's kind of branched out on his own and he's built something akin to like a mini Koch network because he has these PACs that he funds. He has candidates that he funds. He funds Breitbart News, as I mentioned. He he owns this, or part at least partly owns this Cambridge Analytica data firm. And so that gives him a lot of sort of pieces on the on, that, that he can move around the chessboard. And it's really culminated now with his and his daughter and their gatekeeper, Steve Bannon's role in the Trump campaign, if the Trump ca- if if Trump wins, polls suggest that is unlikely at this point. But if he wins, that would put the Mercers really in the catbird seat, and they would have tremendous influence. If if they if Trump loses, it will be interesting to see whether they retrench and sort of rethink. But given the way that they've approached their really ramped up political involvement, I don't see that happening. I see them jumping to the next person. Let's not forget. 
They backed Ted Cruz in a huge way in the GOP primary before getting behind Trump. And the fact that they were willing to get behind Trump after uh, backing Ted Cruz so uh, generously, I think it is very suggestive of their uh, desire to remain really engaged and at the fore of, of Republican politics. Well, it's the politics. same super PAC. Didn't they just repurpose Keep the Promise? They did, yeah. But they had given, you know, they had given like upwards of $11 million, I think, to the Ted Cruz super PAC. And now they're in for another two uh, since it's been rebranded as a Trump super PAC. So these and are Steve bunch- Bannon is like their guy. So he was really like their gatekeeper. Uh, and and it's, uh, and he's, I understand my sources tell me he's very close to them. So it's interesting to see though when, when, Bre- when Breitbart News was going after Ted Cruz, they sort of shifted. They were very pro-Ted Cruz, as Hadass and I wrote. And then they shifted and became very anti-Ted Cruz and pro-Donald Trump. And the question that the people I talked to were asking is, how could the Mercers be behind this website that is going after Ted Cruz? So there's a lot of unanswered questions about their involvement, but they're really folks to keep an eye on. So it's interesting to me that over the last week, we've seen, Eli, a change in Donald Trump. And it's not the change that many people, including many of the people in this room, had anticipated looking at the new campaign team that was coming in. Tell us about this pivot, if it is one. Well, you know, the Bannon got all the headlines during the campaign shakeup, and Kellyanne Conway was kind of the, the second person referenced. But, you know, she's, you know, as we've talked about, the first woman campaign manager on a presidential campaign. And she is the one doing all the TV interviews. She's the one with a public face at this point. Uh, Bannon's the one the Democrats want to talk about. But Kellyanne Conway's vision of Donald Trump is sort of more what we've started to see over the last week. Ironically, this, this is sort of the message that everybody said Paul Manafort was trying to get Donald Trump to deliver, couldn't seem to do it, and then you replace Manafort with Kellyanne Conway, and suddenly Donald Trump is softening his edges um, and some policy positions. The difficult thing is, you know, you put Donald Trump on a script and have him read the teleprompter and have him give a speech last week saying he regrets certain statements and he actually uh, has empathy, that he's capable of empathy. You know, that's fine. But when he starts talking to uh, African-American and Hispanic audiences directly uh, and when he starts coming out and, and really making a muddle of the one clear policy position that he's been consistent on throughout his campaign, which is immigration, and suddenly saying, you know, the guy who wants to build a wall, uh, suddenly talking about softening his position on immigration, really making a muddle of it, uh, you see Conway's influence. What what all of this is about is trying to bring back a lot of the disaffected uh, Republican voters, the, the sort of moderate Republicans the who have right written, people. Right, center-right, not the alt-right, but the center-right, and speaking to some swing voters. Those women, you know, in the suburbs and the exurbs, the women voters who tend to decide presidential elections, who Trump has more or less lost. And what he's trying to do by talking in a more, uh, in a softer way about or to minorities, what he's trying to do by you know, couching his uh, immigration policies in more humane language is to you know, make himself acceptable again somehow yeah, to I'm those swing racist. voters. The problem is he's in such a straitjacket because, you know, all that free publicity that he got over, you know, the first 14 months of his campaign that we, you know, his Republican rivals complained about, you know, giving Trump a free ride to the nomination. Well, it worked because the only metric were, was Republican voters in primaries, right? But the entire country was seeing all of these reports. Everybody now knows everything that Donald Trump has been saying for the last year. And so while he was helping himself and winning primaries, he was also 
throughout that entire time, really making it more difficult for himself to ever become a viable general election candidate. And that's where we are right now. Him getting out of this straitjacket, however good Kellyanne is, um, is really going to be some feat. And I don't know that it's possible. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, the, there was a lot of focus, I remember, last year and in the years preceding, right, on uh, Republicans wanting uh, their debate moderators to be uh, conservative, conservative pundits, conservative journalists, you know, with, with some kind of regular nonpartisan uh, journalists sprinkled in because they were, they were concerned that in 2012 and 2011, the questions in these presidential debates were essentially designed to make Republican candidates look bad. They wanted, uh, they wanted these debates to be focused around issues that Republicans cared about. But I think what got lost in that discussion is that everyone was still watching, right? Just like Eli just said. And, um, you know, the idea that, People are going to turn around in the next, what, 80-some days, 70-some days? 74. 74 days, um, if it ever actually happens. I'm, I'm still convinced the election isn't ever going to happen. But the, <laughs> the idea that people are going to just kind of turn around and forget everything that's happened in the hundreds of days before that right away is is a tough proposition. It's you not, know, I, I don't think possible. people actually like pay that close attention to that. I mean, obviously, his, his backers and so much of his support was based on his hard line on immigration. So maybe that's a little bit of an exception. But I still think that most voters are not that focused on like the nuances of his plan, which uh, we talked to a number of experts for a story that's uh, on our w- website right now. Uh, the, the plan is like completely confused and totally muddled and he's all over the place. But I don't think voters like really hold that type of thing against him. I do think that the moderating of the tone and the staying on message, if Kellyanne can achieve this like near miraculous feat and continue it through the election, I do think that voters will uh, be attentive to that. And that could shape their perceptions of him. And just listening to him, I mean, so listening to him actually talk, I think he's, you know, he's mostly on message. He gets, he gets off a little bit, obviously this immigration thing, not a hit. Kellyanne did not want him to be as, as confused as he is on that. But he was talking to the New York Times about the strategy. And he said, I have been staying on message more now because ultimately I'm finding that I do better with voters, do better in the polls when I'm on message. I mean, how would he know? Like, yeah, when has right. he ever been on message? That's a good point. But you could like hear Kellyanne like saying that and see her influence. And uh, and there's no underestimating her influence thus far. But it's I'm- like they finally potty trained the toddler. I mean, they actually, the campaign sent a press release last week saying Trump's great week. And they cited a story that was headlined, Trump stays on message. I mean, that's where the bar is for them. And it's a problem. I mean, I think, you know, what they are trying to do, and Ken is right, they're trying the best they can do at this point on issues is to make a muddle of something that before seemed clear, his immigration policy. Because if it's a muddle, voters can sort of see whatever they want to see. They can, they can, you know, grasp the language where he says it's going to be humane, it's hard to break up families, and his supporters can say, you know, when he's still saying, we're going to build the wall, damn it, they can latch onto that and say, okay, he means this. Everybody can say, well, this is what I think he means. And that's probably the best case scenario for him. The irony is that's about what your quote-unquote typical politician would do, right, to sort of talk out of both sides of their mouth. I mean, the irony is Trump's the outsider candidate, and at this point in the game, he's revealed himself to just be playing the political game like everybody else. I don't think there's anyone in America more excited about what Donald Trump has done than Ted Cruz. No. Who has always been saying this this guy is just a liberal in disguise. Totally vindicated. Let's go to our next data point. It's four to one. That's the ratio of Trump's events to Clinton's events in the last week. Now, listen, it's pretty clear that she spent the entire summer working on a run-out-the-clock strategy, but she's still got these two twin 
controversies that are dogging her. One is the email server, one is the foundation, and this week there were some developments, Eli, that brought those two things together in a way that I don't think this campaign can ignore. No, and they've been trying to ignore that. You know, so the FBI finds 15,000 uh, previously undisclosed Clinton emails. Trump and all of his surrogates have been getting emails pinging you know, into my inbox all week from every Trump surrogate demanding a special prosecutor look into ties between the Clinton Foundation and the State Department. Um, you know, and Republicans uh, have accused her also of hiding from the press, you know, and trying to run out the clock. There's a lot of chatter about... Um, you know, where is she? And, and she's not doing anything in the four to one ratio of, you know, events. I mean, Trump is outworking her. That is true. The question is, is he doing, you know, is he helping his cause or hurting it? I think, you know, she went on CNN last night, answered some of these questions. And that was really, that was her first national TV interview in over a month. Um, she was asked about press conferences and said, well, you'll see, there'll be plenty more opportunities. But you can tell even in a bad week, they still feel pretty confident. And, and in giving the speech, about Trump and the alt-right, they're really trying to make sure that the focus remains on why Donald Trump is unacceptable, not on the problems people have with her. I think the way you see the race in terms of the polls right now, it does validate their approach a little bit. This is a big problem for them, and they know it, but it's all sort of baked in right now, right? Donald Trump and Hillary, De Cl Hillary Clinton are pretty well defined in the eyes of most voters in this country, and I think if people have an idea that, you know, a hard perception that Hillary Clinton is not the most trustworthy person in the world, they also have have this perception at this point that Donald Trump is just not someone they can envision being president. And so I think the Clinton people understand that, yes, this is a weak point for us, but it's kind of baked in at this point, and it's less of a problem for us as Donald Trump's negatives are for him. Here's how you know, Eli, that, uh, that the, the Clintons regard this as a serious problem and like a, one that is not going away, is that you look at the pushback that they deployed. It's vintage Clinton. They sent out all their surrogates to attack the Associated Press over this story that they did using the, uh, the, the, uh, the schedules that they obtained through a FOIA that the Clintons had pushed back on very vigorously, even getting that FOIA out there, allowing them to break down the schedule and look to see. And what their, their, their sort of nut graph determination was that of the 154 people who had met with Hillary Clinton during her time as Secretary of State who were not officials from the U.S. government or foreign governments, more than half of them had made donations to the Clinton Foundation. This is something that speaks to access. It's something that is very much in this narrative that Trump and Republicans are pushing, and it's something that the Clintons just went nuts at, assailing the AP, not over the findings, but over the innuendo and the tone, and a tweet, a tweet promoting the story. That's what they went after. And what has been surprising to me, and frankly a little bit disheartening, is the degree to which other media outlets and sort of like unbiased arbiters of the debate have sort of glo have glommed onto this and have gone after the AP story as well, suggesting, oh, there's no there there. You know, they didn't get anything out of it. None of these people who got these meetings can be shown to have received some benefit in exchange for the donation to the Clinton Foundation. And to me, that really misses the point. That's not what this is about. A lot of these folks who are giving money, uh, who are getting these meetings are folks from far 
foreign governments or from foreign entities. And in a lot of these countries, that's the way it works. You write a big check or deliver a briefcase full of cash to the politician or their family, and you expect to get access and you expect to get something even more. So even if Hillary Clinton didn't deliver that something even more, that perception that these that some of these donors have to uh, these donors, the Clinton Foundation donors have, is a major problem, and it's not going away. And there are many media outlets, including the Associated Press and us, who are going to continue to follow this stuff. And we will expect that the Clintons will come at it extremely hard because that's what the Clintons do. She is making an appearance today, a, a speech that's being billed as a big speech that's going to go right after Trump and try to deny him the ability to say, look, I'm just a normal guy. I'm not this extremist. Right. And she released this ad today, uh, which is just ahead of the speech. That's um, probably one of the more striking ads I've seen her release so far this election cycle, which is just any election cycle. It's it it just it opens immediately um, and will play you some of the sound with um, images of pretty much Ku Klux Klan members um, matched up with uh, Donald Trump's voice um, and some of his bungling of answers to whether he disavows David Duke, the white supremacist. Um, And this, she's really going to be attaching Donald Trump to this alt-right movement. And the Clinton campaign has been jumping on this ever since the Trump campaign solidified and made official their alliance with uh, Steve Bannon, who was the he- who is, ne- is still technically the head of Breitbart, is on a leave of absence to help run the campaign. So he hasn't even officially uh, cut off his relationship with them. Let's listen to the sound from this ad. The reason a lot of Klan members like Donald Trump is because a lot of what he believes, we believe in. Trump named Steve Bannon as his new campaign CEO. Mr. Bannon is best known for his controversial Breitbart News, a campaign chair that ran a website that has become a field day for the alt-right, which is racist and all sorts of other ists. The alt-right, which is a sort of dressed up in suits version of the neo-Nazi and white supremacist movements. A lot of what he believes, we believe in. Eli, what is the alt-right? Well, that's a good question. It's a question a lot of people are asking themselves this week because they're hearing it more from Hillary Clinton. They're hearing it about uh, Steve Bannon. I mean, the alt-right really, you know, in the eyes of uh, a lot of, you know, Democrats and sort of mainstream Republicans is this, you know, the underbelly of the conservative movement. These are people who are sort of, you know, outwardly racist, openly racist, people who, um, you know, indulge in wild conspiracy theories. These are people who, um, you know, the left and moderate Republicans have been warning for a long time that Trump is focusing his directing a message toward. And you already saw this nexus between Breitbart, which is really the media home for the alt-right for a long time, this nexus between that media organization and Trump's candidacy. They were carrying water for him and delivering his message to that group of people and defending him from criticism um, you know, for months at this point. Uh, and so I think, you know, what he's opened himself up to here by bringing Bannon onto the campaign is the video that Hadass talked about, the charge that, you know, now there is no, right, there is no thin cloak covering up this alliance. This is out in the open for all to see, this sort of Donald Trump's campaign uh, and base of support uh, 
is the sort of alt-right, the militia folks, the sort of conspiracy theory it's folks. It's not that, just militia people and conspiracy people. It, it's like out-and-out out racists. You know, yeah. what she's trying to do is paint him as the most extremist politician to potentially be in the White House in modern presidential history. Right, and what's really fascinating, at least when it comes to Breitbart, is um, th- I've talked to, I can't even, like dozens of former Breitbart employees in the last couple weeks, and they are all just ashamed of being associated with this website before. I think that they were comfortable, you know, with being this kind of rabble-rousing right-wing website, but when it got into some of these racial issues, now I, I've talked to some of them and they said, I've taken it off my resume. I don't have it on my LinkedIn. I don't want to be associated with it anymore. Oh, that's interesting. Ken, um, jump in here, please. Yeah, so, you know, it's interesting. I think it, I think it really plays into Hillary Clinton's sweet spot and plays into what even, like, Donald Trump's campaign realizes is a real weakness for for him. And it's not necessarily that he is weak among African-American and Latino voters, which he is, but that's more of a problem for the perception that his campaign and that he himself are essentially racist is, is a major problem for him with white suburban voters who he needs to win and he needs to do well with. So you see him making these really awkward appeals, uh, ostensibly to minority voters, but I think the real target is these white suburban voters. So this is where he's, he's talking. He's, uh, he's in Akron, Ohio this week, speaking for prepared remarks. This is shocking that someone would like write this and put this into a teleprompter, but he's talking about how Democrats have failed these minority communities. Poverty, rejection, horrible education, no housing, no homes, no ownership, crime at levels that nobody has seen. You can go to war zones in countries that we are fighting, and it's safer than in some of our inner cities that are run by Democrats. So he's, he's trying to make an appeal to minority voters, but as the New York Times chronicled in a story uh, that's up today, like that, that's not really working. Like People are like, what is he describing? Like They talked to a bunch of black folks who were like, this this bears no resemblance to like my my understanding of like where I live and my community, but I think that the effort is to to reach out the white voters. I don't think that it is necessarily going to be successful, and I think that this effort by uh, Hillary Clinton and her campaign to highlight some of these alt right ties is to 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 drive up concern among not just minority communities, but also among suburban white voters about Trump. Can we talk about the connection and whether there is one between the Tea Party and this current movement? Because I think a lot of people are thinking back, okay, I remember Tea Party was huge, you know, 2010, 2012. Are they in any way connected? Did it grow out of one from the other? Yeah, I covered the, the Tea Party extensively during its rise. And what was interesting about the Tea Party, it was really sort of this like, amorphous uprising that was, you know, it was against the Obama administration, but it was against big government. It actually started during the Bush years at the tail the tail end of the Bush years with the big bailouts. And there were definitely elements of this stringently, um, this ardently anti-immigrant sort of borderline alt-right sentiment that were there. And there were also social conservative elements that were there. But where you saw the Tea Party come to represent, you know, the, in the popular conception, sort of a small government fiscal conservative right. movement was largely because some of these groups that were extremely well financed on the right, that were fiscally conservative groups, including groups in the Koch brothers universe, including Freedom Works, they really got out front and harnessed the Tea Party mm-hmm. and branded it in a way that it was thought of as fiscally conservative. But I, when I went to those rallies, I was 
hearing a lot of these same sentiments and social conservative and even neoconservative sort of more hawkish foreign policy right. sentiments. And so I think that the Tea Party did have elements of this, but I don't think that it was sort of the driving the train in the way that it is now on the right. Well, now the issue of the moment is immigration, right? On the right, it's, you know, it was fiscal conservatism and Obamacare in 08, 09, 10 when the Tea Party rose up. And now immigration is driving this. And so the, like the animating issue and the people uh, who are kind of trying to glom onto that, right? Just like uh, just like you were saying, we saw kind of well-financed groups kind of swoop in and try and harness what was going on in the in the Tea Party movement. We're seeing uh, you know different groups with a different focus, really with this immigration focus, kind of try and harness uh, and what Trump right now. It's exactly. A great effect. Eli, last word on this. I just think it's you know we're we're tiptoeing around the obvious, which is that this whole movement, the Tea Party, rose up and spawned in response to the first African-American president. And there was sort of this latent undercurrent of xenophobia and racism that was part of these Tea Party rallies. It was easy for the Koch brothers to sort of, you know, and then the people who wanted to say this was about fiscal conservatism and, and an opposition to tax hikes, etc., to say, well, this is about that. But, you know, you talk to Republicans now and they look back on it and they say, you know, come to think of it, it's interesting that I would go to these rallies and the people who agreed with me on taxes were also, you know, with Confederate flag bumper stickers on their cars, um, you know, those people. And so I think that this has now sort of festered to the point that, you know, we're seeing it in a presidential campaign. And that's uncomfortable for a lot of Republicans who believe that the Tea Party may have been a positive thing in 2010. Now they're seeing it kind of run amok. Um, and what was maybe a more unified, you know, conservative coalition in the early Obama years has now sort of splintered. And you see some real divisions and schisms with, you know, mainstream Republicans trying to really separate themselves from uh, this alt-right movement and Trump's candidacy, which essentially are one and the same. At but this I, point. but I, I gotta make the point that I don't think it is, I don't think it is the Tea Party. And I also don't think that it's, is fair to, uh, you know, suggest that the Tea Party was, was primarily motivated, animated by like anti-immigration or even like racist sentiments. Um, but it was amorphous, the like a you reason, said. There's a reason that you don't hear the Tea Party sort of name and sloganing and uh, terminology used that much. And that's that it has like totally receded and this right. new sort of alt-right, um, you know, uh, uh, movement is at the edge or the old alt-right movement is now at the, is at the new edge of the, of the conservative movement. So I think you have to, it's important to sort of like see, to, 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 to capture the nuance here and look at the evolution. So I don't think it's like the Tea Party. No, I, I agree with that. I think that it has been an evolution. I think this is the, the current incarnation. You're right. This political season, you've heard all the speeches, you've seen the news. Now we want you to learn the history behind it all. And here's the way. Sign up for The Great Courses Plus. You'll get unlimited access to engaging video lectures on history, politics, economics, and so many more subjects that will explain how we got to this moment, presented by award-winning professors and experts. Sign up for The Great Courses Plus now, and you'll get a free month of unlimited access to all of the courses, including The Skeptic's Guide to American History. Start your free month now by going to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash nerdcast. Remember, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash nerdcast. Last data point four, the number of swing states where polling is within the margin of error. Let's be specific here. Iowa and Nevada are within about one to two points. Ohio, the difference is something like 3.2, and North Carolina, four. 
Eli, how is this affecting the approach of the campaigns? What what is why is this important? Well, it does. You know, the criticism of Donald Trump is that it's not affecting his approach enough. He spent a lot of this week in Texas. He was in Mississippi last night to raise money, and everybody says, "Okay, go to Mississippi to raise money." But why waste time doing a rally there? Right? There's not just the the cost of renting the venue, but there's the opportunity cost of the candidate not being somewhere else. And there's a lot of criticism saying, "You know, time is running out here. You've really got to get this campaign back in a competitive position." Uh, by mid to late September, uh, you know, when early voting begins. And really, uh, I mean, time is really short for Trump at this point. And so there are a lot of people, he's going to New Hampshire today. And, and then, you know, he's back to Iowa on Saturday. But there is just sort of a consternation among people who want to see Donald Trump make this a competitive race and, and defeat Hillary Clinton as to what he's doing with his time. And the map, as you, as you point out, is really sliding the, op- the wrong direction for Trump. We're seeing states like Arizona and Georgia become more competitive and states like North Carolina that was a, a, a toss-up that Mitt Romney won in 2012 sort of moved toward Hillary Clinton. North Carolina, Virginia, Colorado, these are states where there's a you know, real growth and sort of new uh, in-migration from, from educated younger people from other states. Um, that's part of the reason those states are moving away from Donald Trump, especially with the sort of narrow focus of his campaign. But Pennsylvania, you mentioned Ohio mm-hmm. and Florida, where he was just briefly for one rally on Wednesday. Those are the three states that most people agree are just sort of of the utmost importance for, for Donald Trump. He's got to win those states. And how a whole week goes by and you spend you do one event in one of those states and, and are a no show in Ohio and uh, Pennsylvania, even though Mike Pence was there. It just, you know, it leaves a lot of people scratching their heads. Hadass. There is, did they have one bright point this week where they had the higher number of registered voters uh, compared to the Democrats? How much does that affect, though, in the end voting, Scott? It's it's kind of tough to, to say, I think, because, again, a, a lot of the states where you're seeing this are um, – kind of more old school states along the East Coast. And what I mean by that is that um, you still have registration trends in those states that are, you know, existing from like before, uh, you know, Southern Democrats became, you know, conservative Southern Democrats became Republicans and stuff like that. So, for example, uh, in North Carolina, Democrats have for a very long time, even while it was a solidly Republican state, had a huge registration advantage over Republicans there. Uh, Western Pennsylvania has been a very, very strong kind of Democratic registration area because of that historic union presence uh, in in the steel towns out there uh, where my grandparents are from, actually. Now, you know, one of the things that uh, we've saw during the primary was that Donald Trump brought a lot of new voters into the Republican Party, but they weren't new to voting. They were new to being Republican primary voters. And he's prompted a lot of party switching from people who, according to uh, both Republican and Democratic data analytics folks who spend a lot of time studying this, people who were probably already voting Republican in general elections to begin with, they just came into the Republican primary process. For so the they first were time. registered either Democrats or independents and they were but they were still voting Republicans. That's likely. that's kind of the the going theory right now. I mean, you know, honestly, certain, after people register for the first time, they probably don't even think about it anymore. Right. Cuz it doesn't prevent Absolutely. you from voting unless you want to vote in a primary, which right. is what Scott's saying. Absolutely. There's a, a Republican congressman in suburban Pittsburgh who uh, regularly in his primaries gets far fewer primary votes than the Democratic challenger that he has and the Democrat never comes close to him in the general election because they they are not voting according to registration. There's a lot less of this in the Western states uh, where, you know, you didn't really have as many conservative Democrats and liberal Republicans. And the, you know, the the party ID 
numbers in states like Colorado are a lot more are a lot you know, better value for for kind of predicting what's going to happen in the election. What I'm really fascinated by what we're going to see is all the new registered voters this cycle, because there's a lot of organizations, including particularly Latino organizations and even Latino news outlets like Univision and Telemundo, who have these huge pushes to get like a million registered voters and to help people get their citizenship. They're specifically targeting people who are eligible for citizenship to get it and get registered before election day. Now, I haven't seen any of their numbers recently on it, and other than their big announcements, we haven't heard much about it. But if we see, you know, after Election Day that we have millions of new registered voters, you know, it could be because of that. It could be because, you know, of immigrant or, you know, minority fear of Donald Trump. But, I mean, could we be seeing a huge shift in voting demographics after this? Well, one thing I think is interesting about the campaign strategy, Kellyanne Conway said, you know, we, I inherited a schedule that had some problems and we're trying to prune it. They canceled a lot of events this week uh, and probably smartly to sort of regroup and, and figure out where to deploy resources. But I think they're operating on the premise that in this media environment, you know, being on the ground in Florida isn't the most important thing because people in Florida are going to see television coverage of you know, Donald Trump walking through urban Detroit with Ben Carson whenever they decide to plan their inner city tour and the outreach to you know, communities of color, as Ken and I have talked about, is also aimed at, you know, mollifying the concerns of suburban women in swing states like Colorado and Virginia and North Carolina and on down the list. Explain so, that, though. It's that it's not that they they don't want to be seen or they don't want to feel like they're voting for a racist. Right. He needs to make it OK for these people who are moderate Republicans or, or unidentified, uh, unaffiliated swing voters to say to their friends, yeah, I voted for Trump. Uh, and, and, you know, when, when somebody is an out and out, you know, racist tying themselves to Steve Bannon and, and everything that's ever appeared in print on Breitbart.com, that is a problem for a lot of those voters. And so they're trying to sort of uh, offset that by making him look like he has the ear or he's more empathetic to these communities. I think that's a smart strategy. It's just a matter of, you know, whether it works at this point. Again, he's built built up this image and hardened this image over 14 months uh, television coverage that they're relying on. You know, yesterday he did a rally. All three networks cut away from him within five minutes. Some went back to him, especially as he started to hammer away at Hillary Clinton. But he's not generating the same kind of, especially if he tries to rein in the message, because if he's no longer as interesting, you know, and there's pressure on the mainstream media not to just give Donald Trump free airtime, it's, you know, it remains to be seen sort of how um, you know, much that means to him, the free media coverage, as they sort of use that to amplify their message to the places where they're not actually on the ground. And that's why the, the local media coverage of places he's going may may turn out to be more important, maybe part of why they're trying to adjust that schedule. One thing I want to add about, about this, we're talking about how the electoral map seems like it's kind of shifting further and further out of Trump's control with every passing week. There, there's an interesting outlier to that, which is Nevada, uh, which was like the one, maybe kind of the the maybe the biggest example of a state that, that um, you know, people thought that this new Obama coalition of uh, this mi- minority heavy Latino growth Democratic Party uh, had really kind of uh, put out of play almost for Republicans in 2012, certainly. Mitt Romney was not even close uh, to, to beating Obama in the state in, in 2012. But all the polling that we've seen and private polling that Democratic and Republican strategists are seeing in that state for the presidential, for the Senate race has been very close. 
And it's it's kind of this mystery that that, that people are wondering about. It's like what what happened? Why isn't Nevada, which has one of the highest proportions of Latino voters in the in the country of any swing state, why isn't it uh, something that Hillary Clinton has been able to take advantage of? I think part of the answer to that is that uh, Nevada has a very, very active and rebellious, almost conservative base, uh, rural whites uh, outside Las Vegas who um, inflicted major uh, losses on on sitting Republican members of Congress and their or uh, sitting Republican members of the state legislature, pardon me, in their primaries earlier this year. There's this very it's like this proto Tea Party kind of strain was was born in in these rural uh, Nevada areas, and we've seen that with some of the ranching controversy um, over the past few years, and 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 uh, fights with the federal government over mm-hmm. public land. And I think that there's really something uh, uh, going on there that Trump has been able to tap into uh, outside Las Vegas. Don't forget that the uh, recession and the housing crisis really hit Nevada super hard Mm -hmm. and that that I think you know especially for it it affects everybody across minority voters and that probably helped somebody like Donald Trump pick up votes who might otherwise go to a Democratic candidate especially when you have a Democratic candidate like this who consistently gets hammered for her connections to Wall Street for these you know all of that that perception just does not work for her and I think that's part of the reason why Nevada is not leaning as far into that new coalition you were talking that about. That is a great point Hadass. And I think the, the the flip side of that is that a lot of pollsters actually stay away from Nevada because it's traditionally so difficult to get a good read on what's going on there and so we, we may not really have a good idea of exactly how it's going to turn out until later in the election and again part of that is because it's such a transient state there's so much late voter registration there that some a lot of people who vote there are on the rolls yet because they moved at one point in the last in the last few years. It's what six electoral votes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, so we have to get back into a competitive, you know, place in this race for those six electoral votes to matter. Exactly, that's the flip side of it, right? It's you know, it's it's one of the states where it, it hasn't been sliding in Trump's direction, but ultimately, what what does he get out of it? Right. Can we talk about also what the ground game and how that affects? We talk a lot about the the media perception and you know how Trump being in Florida doesn't really matter is he doing more smaller events like you were talking about touring with Ben Carson these these events that aren't necessarily publicized on TV because we know in Trump's mind he wants to spend his time with as much of it as possible being blanketing the airwaves but isn't the door-to-door knocking what really wins elections? You know, the, the the one-on-one interactions being convinced by somebody to vote? Well, there's been a lot of campaign science in recent years that says yes, that says you've got to target voters by name. You've got to know what they what TV shows they watch, and you've got to send people to their houses multiple times. It takes several touches before you get that person out of their house to a polling place, or you get them to mail their, their mail ballot back in. And I think that's right. And I think Trump's campaign is always, you know, sort of, shrugged off a lot of that science and said, no, I'm a different kind of candidate. I can do it differently. And the over-reliance on mass media, you know, maybe that works. Maybe that offsets some of the Democrats' advantage. The RNC has invested in a lot of the campaign science that Trump rejects. They have people on the ground. They're trying to shuffle those people around right now. Um, I mean, there have been stories where campaign like volunteers or people who want to support the campaign can't find Trump signs and have to pay for them themselves off of like third party websites. Right, the so-called collateral. I mean, that's just another thing that the the Trump campaign has just sort of let fall through the cracks. And, you know, do campaign signs matter? I mean, most operatives will tell you like, no, that just is something that makes the candidate feel good. But 
it also tells you know your neighbors that this person has some support in this town, and, and that stuff's been hard to find. Yeah, I think it's not so much the campaign signs, but it gets to this point of you know it's not just what the candidate is doing; it's what is the campaign doing when the candidate's not there? Are these little you know are these smaller scale meetings happening at the campaign headquarters, and then are the people going out from the campaign headquarters getting that you know each field organizer organizer getting their own group of ten or fifteen volunteers who are meeting at a house here, an apartment there, you know. Uh, 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 church basement here uh, and and th- that's the real question it's is their organization to that level beyond uh, you know whether Donald Trump is spending too much time in in one place or another and and it's you know it's much harder to see uh, than his media presence but it's potentially more important Donald Trump and his campaign have talked about some of these hidden voters and there's this theory that people are embarrassed to say that they're voting for Donald Trump but that once they get into the voting booth or once they're at home by themselves filling out the ballot they will end up voting for Donald Trump. How real do you guys think that is? Uh, and I feel like that what we were talking about the on the ground one to one touches that would really help people who might otherwise feel embarrassed about saying that they're voting for Donald Trump feel good about it if they know that there's a bunch of other people with them. Yeah, I think there are potentially two separate questions here. One is like whether the polls are just totally wrong because people are are lying to pollsters who call them and and saying that they're not going to. Uh, vote for Trump. The polls, uh, the polls, the, the polls were not wrong when right. Donald Trump was, you know, leading in all of them and referencing all of them at his rallies. And so to selectively say now, well, all these polls are wrong. Then polls just don't see this hit. You know, that's mm-hmm. total poll trutherism. All right, this is like. <laughs> I mean, but it is. This is like they're going full conspiracy theory on the polls. And, you know, the problem for Trump supporters, if they want to sit here and only look selectively at the polling and not look at the average of polls, credible polls, they're going to be very surprised and disappointed on Election Day when their guy loses. And the evidence is there. It's just a matter of whether you want to recognize it or not. Well, and, and here's, the, here's the second part, right, uh, of that hidden vote thing. Okay, so if the polls are right and what you need to do is you need to convince hidden, quote-unquote, hidden Trump supporters who have not voted before to come out, the single best way to do that is, like you said, to get people at their doors uh, to be talking to them one-on-one, to get people on the phone with them, to be talking to them through the mail and, and you know, trying to, trying to get them to pledge to vote so that, uh, you know, someone can either go back to their house or call them on the phone later and say, hey, remember you pledged. Like, you, you know, these are all very powerful techniques that have been proven by political science experiments that the Obama campaign and other campaigns on both sides of the aisle have used very effectively since then. And, you know, again, there, with this real big focus on a national media campaign, there is not as much uh, sense that, that Trump is doing the type of things that if there was a hidden Trump vote, you would want to do to turn it out. That's it for us. Goodbye, Eli. <laughs> Goodbye. Goodbye, Hadass. Bye. Bye, Ken. Fun time as always. Bye, Scott. Till next week. Thank you to our producer, Bridget Mulcahy, and to all of you for listening. Talk to you next week. We love doing this podcast, and we really love hearing from you. So please keep the emails coming to nerdcast at politico.com and go to your favorite podcast app and leave a review. Thank you for listening. Thank you.